Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Montreal psychologist Gerald Wivia talks about globophobia and why it's so prevalent. Cultural historian Ainsley Hawthorne has some thoughts on the decline of religious participation across Canada. The Greater Vancouver Food Bank's Cynthia Bolter has an update on the increase in demand in these inflationary times. And BC Construction Association President Chris Acheson describes the factors limiting our ability to build things efficiently in BC. So, let's get started. Here's a quote from a column, the Montreal Gazette, that got our attention the other day. Quote, baby boomers often feel left behind and their angst is related to feeling useless. And of course, we old folks have to confront the realities of aging and the acute awareness of mortality. Younger people, on the other hand, are feeling despair. What kind of future will they have? This under an article entitled Tips for Coping with Globophobia. No longer are philosophers the only ones discussing existential angst. It has become a mental health epidemic. The author of this article is a person who describes himself in the article as a psychiatrist and psychotherapist with 50 years experience is Dr. Gerald Wibiot, who is with us today from McGill University and the McGill University Health Center. Dr. Wibiot, Jerry, good morning, sir. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, and I'm, I'm glad we found you and tracked you down. This is worthwhile stuff. You're noticing this in therapy, in clinical settings. You're noticing younger people coming to you more frequently in recent times f- with a sense of despair that you've managed to identify and, and categorize as something called globophobia, which you say is fear of the world. Tell us more, please. You know, earlier in my career, I was treating people with depression. I was part of a, of a mood disorder clinic, and I would see people with depression, and they had feelings of guilt, uh, feelings of hopelessness, feelings of um, obviously sadness mm-hmm. and, and fatigue. But more recently, people who are coming in and saying they're depressed don't have those kinds of biological components of depression. Rather, they're looking at the world and they're saying, what's it all about? Uh, there's a sense of fear. There's a sense of fear around global warming. That's a big one. There's a huge sense of fear about uncertainty, particularly around the political chaos that we're experiencing in the world and, you know, really in North America. There's a sense of fear when people talk about nuclear weapons mm-hmm. perhaps being used in, in Europe. And we've all had to cope with three years of a novel virus that has changed our society dramatically. And we don't know when this pandemic is really going to be over because the virus is capable of mutating. And so people, whether or not they're aware that that these forces, that these uncertainties and that these fears are changing their mood, Mm. that's what's coming out when I talk to them in therapy. Dr. Wibby, how, how much how much of a factor? Sorry to interrupt, sir, but you mentioned the pandemic, and and that's yeah. sort of piling on, to use a football term. That's the yep. sort of that's the proverbial straw that breaks the back, isn't it? Because of all of those other the combination of other anxieties and 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 concerns, and then you have this this prolonged period of strange isolation and other 
very odd behaviors piled on top of that. That was that really the the, the, the was it the pandemic, Doctor Wiviet, that made the difference that you're seeing these days. You know, that's an interesting uh, uh, idea that we've lived through those you know horrible three years of social isolation, et cetera. And if I were speaking with you maybe two years ago, I would have said that the the pandemic and all of the upheaval that we've experienced was the major force. I'm not so sure anymore. Hmm. Just recently in the New York Times, there have been a number of long articles about global warming. It's becoming front and center, whereas before it was sort of a, a shadow that was in the background. It's become very present, as we've talked about the the world reaching 1.3 degrees centigrade over what it had been. And we're approaching what people call the tipping point. This is becoming more more present uh, as people think about the future. Younger people are saying, why should we have children? Mm -hmm. Grandparents like me are thinking, oh, my God, what kind of future are my children and grandchildren going to have? This has really entered our consciousness in a way that I've never seen it before. Uh, Even older people, I was talking to somebody uh, who recently was recovering from heart surgery uh, who said, my anxiety is so high, I can't listen to the news anymore. Mm -hmm. I I can't read nonfiction. I have to try as much as possible to get into a world that's more comfortable for me. This one that I'm living in right now is just making me more anxious. Indeed. Dr. Riviet, though, you're old enough, sir, and I am too, to remember our childhood and uh, those uh, d- those drills we had to do in class. We had to get under our desks and, and uh, hit the floor just in case a nuclear bomb went off. We grew up uh, in the post-war era of the Cold War and the omnipresent uh, uh, threat of mutually assured destruction and uh, other mm-hmm. challenges. Uh, I wonder uh, in terms of our uh, the, the the difference between uh, uh, our parents and the parents of today is, I think our parents had just survived a war, <laughs> and anything that any anything that presented itself as being problematic by comparison was was doable. Uh, I don't think we're dealing with a different generation of parents here who haven't had that experience in their childhood, and so they respond differently. Would you agree with any of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, there's been maybe 70 years of of relative stress-free environment, uh, economic growth by and large, one or two periods of recession, yes, but generally economic growth, a rise in the middle class, uh, a recognition that uh, racial tensions were horrific, and now we're coming to grips with that and making a great deal of progress. Sure. The, we in, uh, of this older generation were blessed with a, a sense of peace. Now, it's true that we did have duck and cover exercises. Yeah. Um, I can remember that stuff, sure. In, in the 1950s. And I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis yep. in 1963, 1962, rather, when a professor of mine in philosophy, um, on the day that the submarines, the Russian submarines, were coming to Cuba, the professor said, look, we're not going to have a class today. Go out, have fun. Who knows how many more days we're going to have. Mm-hmm. It was, there was that kind of fear, but it was short-lived. Right now, we're, we're dealing with a number of, of these kinds of fears that don't seem to have an end point. That, 
plus the economic, no, the political uncertainty, as if nobody's in charge, mm-hmm. uh, unless strong men come along and limit our freedoms and and take control in some kind of autocratic way. It, it's a different time right now, and people are experiencing it. Dr. Webby, and only we, uh, only a minute left, sir, and I wonder just just for your for your comment, how much of this is legitimate, and how much of it has been exacerbated or accelerated or fueled by the education industry, which see, which has dealt with the climate realities uh, in a very very uh, strident way. Well, I guess I'm a believer that uh, this is not exaggerated. Uh, the more I read about uh, the climate and the more we, uh, you know, we're, looking, we're facing reality with COVID. We're facing reality with the war in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, these are real phenomena as well as the political chaos. I think anybody who is attuned to what's happening in the world feels this sense of anxiety. Right. Perhaps the majority of people are saying this is being overhyped. We don't have to worry. Let's get on with our partying and, and our usual business. But I think that they're, they're, they're hiding and, and, and that's okay. If that serves them well, that's okay. I'm just saying that if we think about it, Let's uh, let's recognize where we are and take steps to deal with our own individual lives in as in as healthy a psychological way as we can. Absolutely. Dr. Jerry Wibbiot at uh, Montreal McGill University Health Center. Thanks very much for this, sir. We do appreciate your joining us today. It took us a couple of weeks to get you and we're well worth the wait. We do appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Joined on the line from St. John's, Newfoundland by Dr. Ainsley Hawthorne, here to talk to us about uh, some headlines we saw across the country this week with respect to Canadians and our affiliation with religion. One of them headlines, how Canada's religious makeup has shifted over the past 20 years, went on to talk about how more of us are not affiliated to any religion, according to the latest census. And yesterday, here in Vancouver, Doug Todd had a column entitled, Metro Vancouver Tops the List of non-religious big cities in North America. So here we are at at Action Central, as it turns out. Dr. Ainsley Hawthorne in St. John's, Newfoundland, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show this morning. Well, it's great to have you with us, Ainsley. I saw the video on your website. You talk, along with your partner, about reimagining church. And you did this in a church, what I thought was pretty cheeky. Uh, but nonetheless, you, you've, been, you've been on this for a while in terms of uh, uh, trying to diagnose the obvious and growing separation between Canadians, particularly Christian Canadians, and their religious affiliations. Uh, did the census information released this week in any way surprise you? I don't think it surprised me because it's continuing a trend that we've been seeing over the course of the last 20 years. Um, Since 2001, the number of Canadians who identify as not having any religious affiliation whatsoever or as having a secular perspective like atheism or agnosticism has doubled. So that is consistent with what we saw in the uh, 2011 census, where it was increasing over time. So that trend is just continuing. And much of that loss is coming from people who previously identified as Christian or who come from families that previously identified as Christian. So in 2001, that would have been... um, 77.1% 77.1% of the population, and in the most recent census, it was only 
That's a significant drop in 20 years. That's, that's a generation, basically, as demographers will tell us, Ainsley. And, and that suggests that going forward, it's going to re- drop off even more sharply. That's what we can expect because we do see that the percentages of people with no religious affiliation are higher in the younger generations, which means that as the population ages, we would expect the percentage of people with no religious affiliation to become higher and higher. I wonder, and you talked about, you were quoted in, in the Star uh, when they did, did their piece on the census, and you were one of the people that they, they went to first for comment. And you talked about the morality of uh, Christianity uh, taking a pretty severe beating in the last couple of years with the uh, revelations regarding uh, uh, graves at uh, residential schools and a, a full accounting of what went on and all of that sort of thing. And a lot of that not all. The federal government was indeed the, the master planner, but a lot of that activity related specifically to Anglican and Catholic uh, church uh, followers. And that's, uh, that's caused both the Anglicans and particularly the Catholics to take a massive hit here in Canada. Yes, I think their involvement with residential schools and also the many sexual abuse allegations against clergy, uh, primarily in Catholic, the Catholic denomination, but across other Christian denominations as well, have caused kind of a moral crisis for Christian institutions. They claim to be these moral authorities in society, but when people who represent those institutions are behaving in completely immoral and criminal ways, yeah. they become very difficult for people to trust them and to go to them uh, with questions of morality and faith. But in addition to that, I think we've also seen a great deal less social pressure to be Christian. So if you think about 75, 100 years ago, and there would be many small settler communities in Canada where everyone was Christian. Everyone could see who was going to the community's small church every week. Sure. And that was part of your social standing. Yep. So there was kind of this compulsory Christianity. And in indigenous communities, there was missionary work, there was forced conversion through residential schools. So there was a great deal of pressure in both settler and indigenous communities to be and to remain Christian. We no longer have that to the same extent in our society today. Uh, we talked. I talked about uh, the headline in the Vancouver Sun yesterday, Ainsley, about Metro Vancouver being uh, the uh, topping the list of non-religious big cities in North America. And I found that surprising only because we have such a massive immigrant component to our population in Metro Vancouver. And you suggest in your commentary on this uh, that, in fact, in the immigrant communities, that's where the strength of religious affiliation remains the highest. Correct. I think it really depends on what religion we're talking about. So when we look at immigration to Canada, the percentage of immigrants who are arriving with no religious affiliation is also higher than ever before. Uh Right. So it's not as high as what we're seeing in the Canadian population as a whole, but we're still receiving very large number of immigrants with no religious affiliation. Um, The immigrants who are arriving in Canada with a religion and continuing to practice their religion in this country are Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs. Yes. And they represent uh, fairly small percentages of the population. So, for instance, Muslims are 4.9%, Hindus are 2.3%, Sikhs are 2.1%. So they're small percentages, but those percentages have doubled since uh, 2001. So what we can see is that primarily through immigration, 
um, more people from those states are arriving in Canada and continuing to practice those states in their communities here. Interesting stuff. Uh, Ansley, a final question to you, and it's such a treat to have you on the show. Thanks for making yourself available to us. What do you see? And I, again, I'm, I'm referring back to a video of yours that I watched a day or two ago. What do you see in terms of the church, particularly the Christian denominations in Canada, doing, if anything, to try to reverse this trend and get people coming back to religious observances? To be honest with you, the Christian religious leaders that I know at the local levels, I'm talking about here in my community of St. John's, um, quite a number of them are accepting that the church needs to change radically, that it needs to be smaller, that it needs to be less wedded to buildings like churches, and go back to maybe a more ancient or traditional view of Christianity where people gathered for fellowship, but weren't necessarily as wedded to institutions, church institutions. So I think there's certainly a certain percentage of the church clergy and Christianity that's willing to embrace radical change. Interesting stuff. Do you see it happening? I do. Well, again, the church that invited me to speak is an example of such a church that is wondering about how they can change going forward. From my perspective as a secular person who represents one of these individuals who has no religious affiliation, I think we as secular people also need to build ways to have community, to have fellowship, to do community service, and to play some of the roles that religious institutions used to play that we no longer want them to play in our society. Final question to you, Dr. Hawthorne. A lot of us who are, uh, who are you would describe or the census would describe as non-religiously affiliated still like to refer to ourselves or imagine ourselves as somewhat spiritual beings and yet find it difficult to define it more than just that. Absolutely. I think it's very common to say something like you're spiritual, not religious. Yeah. That can mean different things for many people. It can mean anything from having a sense that there's more in the world that we currently know or that we may ever know, but not being able to define what that is. Or it can just be an appreciation for the complete beauty and wonder of the physical world around us. I do think it's really possible to appreciate and be amazed and have wonder at the world that we live in without necessarily ascribing that to a divine force. Interesting. It's a lot of people seem to be agreeing with you in, in larger numbers year by year. Ainsley Hawthorne, thanks ever so much for joining us today. I'm glad to have found you. We'll, uh, we'll talk again. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for our conversation today. Food bank usage across Canada hit an all-time high earlier this year. In March was the latest number we have final statistics for. And in that month, nearly 1.5 Canadians visited food banks across Canada. That was March. It's a pretty safe bet that visits haven't slowed down. In fact, have likely increased across Canada in that time. Here to talk more about it and its impact locally is the COO of the Vancouver Food Bank. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to Cynthia Bolter. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you back with us. It's been a while since we had a chat. These numbers in March uh, suggest really an unprecedented number of Canadians heading to food banks. And as I say, that's that's many months ago. It's October. Conditions have not improved. If anything, they've uh, worsened uh, with respect to costs, food costs, and our ability to pay them. They sure have, and we have seen really since since May 
some extremely high numbers of, of usage and particularly new registrants to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Um, June, July and August really saw a thousand people each month registering as new clients. And we have never seen volumes like this. Um, so it's it's very concerning. We are seeing uh, many of our community agencies about uh, 40% of the food we provide each month goes to community agencies and 60% goes to individuals. And many of our community agencies have cut off registration because they are at capacity. And a couple are even uh, shrinking the groups that they serve and sending a couple of demographic groups over to us at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Interesting stuff. Cynthia, they talk in the report, at least about the national numbers, that uh, two groups that appear to be most affected by all of this in in recent times, seniors and students, Mm -hmm. neither of whom have great deal of, of income, and particularly seniors on fixed incomes. And if you're relying on government fixed incomes, there's absolutely no way that is in any way keeping up with inflation. That's right. Uh, The fixed income group is really hurting uh, pensioners and people on uh, disability pensions um, or income uh, certainly have seen their capacity to keep up shrink. Uh, In BC, you know, we see, well, the Greater Vancouver Food Bank in particular, we see higher numbers of seniors and slightly lower numbers of children than you would see in the national average. So our seniors for the last year were around 14% of our clients Mm. um, and children were around 26. But the top three reasons for people registering with the food bank are um, being an international student, being new to the country, uh, and then just not being able to keep up with the cost of living. So about 60% of our students that registered last year uh, were new to the country within the last couple of years. And, and that's a group that really has seen their, their savings deplete in large part, uh, and they have been restricted on the amount of hours they can work. There's a, a temporary change to that and, and an increase a relaxing of that 20 hours a week, uh, but you do have to qualify. So um, that's a group that that really struggles. And many of these people are coming in with qualifications from other countries. They're dentists, they're lawyers, they're accountants, but their um, qualifications are not recognized here. So they have to do further schooling. Cynthia, one uh, factoid that you sort of glossed over in terms of uh, identifying components of the population that require the assistance of food banks, and that was children. You said just 26% of your client base is represented by children. That's one in every four persons Mm -hmm. that you help at the food bank is a little kid we don't think about mm-hmm. that aspect of people requiring food typically mm-hmm. do we no and and they're always sort of overrepresented in terms of food bank use versus the percentage of the population that that they make up i mean 30 percent of our clients last year were families um and we really we focus on the children we have three programs for children from birth right up to 12 years of age we design them with dietitians. So when families come and they have children, um, not only will they pick up their, their weekly allotment of food, which is 60% fresh right now, um, but they will also once a month be able to pick up um, an extra nutrition program for whatever age their, their children is. So we, we really try to, to focus on those nutritional and developmental needs of the kids in families where they just can't keep up.
Right. I'm quoting now from the website, quote, the Greater Vancouver Food Bank was set up as a temporary relief to the hunger crisis in 1983. But the need still exists today. And you go on and on. That's that. I mean, uh, since and the next uh, uh, part of this is very important. We receive no ongoing government Mm -hmm. funding Mm -hmm. and exist Mm -hmm. solely through the generosity of the public, our industry partners and applicable grants as the need and the demand at food banks continues to grow, Cynthia, are your, are your contributors, is the generosity correspondingly also going up? It has been so far. We are super fortunate. We focus a great deal on our donors, the time we spend describing the impact of their gift, telling client stories. Um, the, the public has been extremely generous so far. We just are honestly really concerned about where where is the ceiling? I mean, it's it's not only the donations that have to keep up, but our our inability to simply hire people. Like like many others, we are struggling to keep up in a couple of different areas uh, with our staffing sure. and, and hire the right people. Uh, we have to have the people to distribute the food once we once we buy it or acquire it. And the interesting thing is with with what we're seeing, um, we know when the pandemic hit that when the government did provide some income, a steady income as in CERB, to a number of individuals in society, we saw a food bank usage dip, okay. as did many of the food banks across the country. So we know that having that sort of income floor, a base of income, dispensable income, so that people don't have to make that choice between school and uh, food or rent and food or the electricity bill and food, uh, it, it makes a huge difference. Um, we will still have that sort of international student and, and newcomer um, uh, scenario that we are seeing right now. We're seeing, unfortunately, uh, a lot of stories where newcomers to Canada are being taken advantage of by landlords. Mm-hmm. They are in cockroach infested uh, places that they have to move out of. Uh, and they run out of savings, and so there there are I think lots of lots of different policy areas the government can focus on. But honestly, if this current scenario and and this will not improve in the short term, that is, uh, is our uh, absolute belief. If that doesn't spur some some government action to support people in need, I'm. I'm not sure what will, because we've never seen times like this. Indeed. Cynthia, you talked about staffing issues, and we're going to talk to the construction people in our next hour. They're having the same problem. It's just labor shortage and increasing costs. It's a, it's a double whammy squeeze. Uh, on the website, you also talk about 60,000 volunteer hours given every year to the food bank. How dependent are you on those volunteers on a daily basis? That's such a great question. We couldn't do what we do on any given day without volunteers. So we have volunteers in our warehouse sorting through some food, packing those nutritional programs that I talked to you about. We have volunteers in food distribution at our Vancouver location, for example, where over 60% of our clients live and, and come to us for support. We need about 25 volunteers a day. We have volunteers in Burnaby, New West, and the North Shore um, and we have volunteers in our office every day. So it is a, a huge component of what we do. And that's another group that we really focus on in terms of how easy do we make it to volunteer? What does that software look like? How are we thanking them? 
How are we making sure that they know how much we appreciate them and, and the impact that they are having? Absolutely. And if you're interested in helping the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, either through a generous donation or perhaps a donation of your time that you're prepared to volunteer, all the information is online at their excellent website, foodbank.bc.ca. The COO of the Vancouver Food Bank is Cynthia Bolter. Cynthia, great to have you back with us on Halloween weekend, no less. Oh, you're awesome, Sterling. Thanks for the great questions and the time on air. The BC Construction Industry and Association has just issued a new report in which they basically claim to be caught in a kind of a double squeeze. It's a combination of available labor supply, which is limited, and a rising, escalating cost of construction materials. A double whammy squeeze indeed. Here to talk more about it is the president of the BC Construction Association. A pleasure to say good morning to Chris Atchison. Chris, welcome to the program. Uh, good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's good to have you with us. Did I identify the double squeeze correctly, Chris? Is that the kind of conundrum builders in BC are facing these days? Well, it's you know, I would say double is putting it lightly. There seems to be uh, more and more squeezes coming on us every day. But, you know, I think to sum it up, there's been a, um, a decrease uh, in commercial con- <clears throat> construction activities since the onset of the pandemic. Sure. We, we, uh, due to um, inflation and, and the interest rates going up, there's a rising project financing costs that we're seeing. There's been equipment shortages that have started during the pandemic, if not before, but exacerbated by supply chain disruptions. Um, and so there's uh, equipment and material shortages, not to mention the volatile uh, material prices that we've witnessed over the last couple of years, and those continue uh, to today. And then, of course, we've got the skilled worker shortages yes. uh, that are uh, continuing uh, as people are uh, examining their lifestyle. And, and quite frankly, we've had an aging uh, population for a while now, so we need to encourage more people uh, to undertake the high opportunities in our industry. So there's a lot of pressures uh, squeezing the industry right now, and the economic outlook is, uh, is one that, that gives us concern in addition to that, for 2023. And all of this, of course, Chris, uh, uh, combined with the higher pressure from everyone these days, it seems, to create more housing. There's all levels of government. In fact, we had a, it was a local election, big deal issue just a couple of weeks ago here around Metro Vancouver. More housing. We need more housing. Come on, put those buildings up. How many contractors and people in the construction business, Chris, this weekend are in trouble? They've committed to a project. They've costed it out. And all of a sudden, they're going to end up being, if they're lucky, breaking even. Yeah, that's the nature of our industry right now. And we can do more to improve upon that. So first of all, um, we are a partner uh, in in the housing solution in this province, regardless of which municipality, regardless of whether it's a BC housing project, uh, directives from other crown corporations, or, or it's... Uh, you know, any, any size of municipal building, mm-hmm. industrial, commercial and institutional industry is, is there to support. Um, but what I will say is, you know, over 90% of the contractors in British Columbia are small employers with less than 20 employees. And so uh, when, you, when you put that into, into the scale of the work that we need to be doing, we also need to attend to the reality that the contractor community that is building in British Columbia is largely small. They don't have sophisticated HR departments, but they do have a lot of attention to detail, great craftsmanship, um, and great adherence to safety protocols. 
So we, we need to make sure that anything that we can do to support them is supported at the highest levels of government. And that's why we've been saying a simple thing that we can do uh, to ensure the sustainability of those contractors that we need to continue to build this province and build the priorities of this province is to bring in um, what we call prompt payment legislation. And right now there's a lot of payment uncertainty. We've outlined all the reasons for cost escalations and labour shortages. Mm -hmm. But if we can make the simple gesture of providing certainty to these smaller contractors, it's one thing off their plate that costs us nothing to do. And it's not experimental legislation. It exists in other jurisdictions. Ontario and Alberta, Saskatchewan already have it. And BC, given what we are undertaking in terms of uh, building and the projects that we have in the pipeline and the ambitious uh, approach to really um, uh, develop more uh, uh, larger-scale housing projects, this is something that we should be doing to demonstrate to the builders that we need, uh, that they matter to us. And this, this is something that, that will continue uh, to, to work in collaboration with the provincial government to make sure that they understand the importance of this type of legislation. Well, you've got a new premier going to be sworn in in a few weeks' time, and Mr. Eby has been quite public with his uh, his sentiments regarding the need for greater housing. He's been most aggressive about it and has promised to start leaning on municipalities that he sees uh, dragging their feet on this particular file. So if he's that enthusiastic about uh, increasing house construction and productivity in the construction sector, that might be the kind of uh, person open to the, the, the sort of legislation you're, you're requesting on behalf of your contractors, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, we think that this, um, that this this becomes a great opportunity for the industry. It becomes a great opportunity for, uh, for the, the new premier and for the new, uh, the new cabinet that will be coming in because it's not just the housing file. There are other um, capital spending ministries that are building schools and hospitals sure. and other structure in this province all of whom can benefit from this type of collaboration and this type of attention uh, to the labor market um, woes and also the need uh, for prompt payment legislation uh, to be ushered in uh, during his tenure in British Columbia. I think it's a tremendous win-win and it's something that that can be done using uh, the lessons learned from other jurisdictions in including the UK, the United States, and some of our uh, counterparts to the east. Interesting stuff. Now, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about with respect to the labor shortage that is so acute uh, in the construction sector, it is everywhere else, but it's felt acutely in the construction sector, uh, and that is, Chris, some indication of uh, a greater emphasis on the part of government. It reflects right down through the Ministry of Education to the school at your corner uh, level of uh, uh, increasing emphasis on skilled trades, the dignity of being a Red Seal performer in any sector of the economy uh, is not something to be looked down your nose at. And for some reason, our education system seems to seems to be aiming everyone to sort of some kind of post-secondary degree. And, you know, we could use a lot more skilled workers in this province, couldn't we? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the number of high-opportunity occupations that exist in the construction um, workforce are um, incalculable. Like they're, uh, people are, we're surprised every day with the amount of technology and ingenuity. Um, you know, and, and I think that the lifestyle that people in the skilled trades can, can achieve 
the, the number of regional construction associations and provincial construction associations, when we look at the composition of the, the boards and the, the teams that are, are working around this province, the quality of life that they have, they start early, they end early, and they're able to go and, and enjoy the outdoors of British Columbia. They're able to, uh, to afford to do the things and have the things. And those are sometimes, um, I, I think we're coming to a place, and especially during the pandemic, where people are really appreciating the type of lifestyle that uh, the op- opportunities in the skilled trades can provide. Sure. They can help. There are good benefits. And there's, a, I, I, you know, very few. We, we all know how busy construction job sites are during our week and during our morning commutes. But on the evenings and the weekends, those, uh, those people have their lives to enjoy their freedoms, to enjoy the outdoors, um, and, and to pick up their pastimes. So those, that quality of life really exists. And sometimes we don't do a good enough job of, of, of examining um, how meaningful, not only how, um, uh, not only how gratifying and, and the legacy that people in the skilled trades are leaving behind with the physical uh, things that they're building, uh, but the quality of life at the end of their career journey is fantastic. Interesting stuff. Chris, uh, new report uh, just out uh, this week from the BC Construction Association uh, noting uh, the, the economic realities that the association faces. Uh, faces rather. Uh, are you optimistic going forward that you're going to get a little more cooperation from government in terms of secured payments and uh, uh, more attention being paid to filling up the ranks of trades, skilled tradespeople? Yeah, I wouldn't be in this role if I weren't optimistic about our ability to collaborate <laughs> and, and work with, uh, you know, work with all levels of government and a variety of stakeholders throughout the province, Sterling. So that, that to me, uh, we've, we've got an amazing team. We've got an amazing industry with lots of collaboration uh, uh, throughout with, with, you know, with partners uh, to the BC Construction Association. Um, I will say the economic realities with the costs, uh, you, you know, uh, the interest rates going up and inflation going up, and we're watching what's happening in, in, uh, in Europe, we're watching what's happening in the United States, there are certain things that may fall outside of our control. And I think it's important for us to remember uh, that there are things that we can control, and those are the things that we need to focus on. So that's reinforcing the positives about the type of workers uh, the skilled workforce that we need and investing in them now. It's, it's, it's valuing the contractors who hire those skilled workers and making sure that they are as healthy as they can be through actions like prompt payment legislation mm-hmm. and really just understanding the composition of the contractor community in BC. It's huge. Yeah. And, and that drives, uh, you know, almost 10% of our GDP. So we are, uh, we are partners in this with the provincial government. Sometimes, you know, we need to make our points, but we always want to come to the table to build a better system for all of those that are involved in, the, um, you know, in the construction industry and to make sure that um, we, we shed the positive light on, on, on the opportunities that exist within our industry. Chris, always a pleasure to have a conversation with a relentless optimist. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.